Scripture reading this morning will be taken from the book of Psalms, chapter 26, verses 6 through 8. It be found on page 492 in your pew Bible in front of you. Psalms 26, verses 6 through 8. I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may, pro- that I may proclaim with, voice, with the voice of thanksgiving and tell you of all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the in the place where your glory dwells. Good morning. It is good to see each one of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It does encourage us that you're here. We hope that we can be an encouragement to you. It's exciting to be in a time where a lot of emphasis is placed on giving. It's our Lord that taught us it's more blessed to give than to receive. And we're thankful for each one of you that participated yesterday in putting together a lot of the Christmas baskets and uh, delivered those to several widows and widowers and shut-ins and and, uh, just communicated that we love them and we thank all of you that participated in uh, those gifts to some wonderful, wonderful people. You know, several years ago, it was 2009, we started asking the question, if the Mount Juliet Church of Christ ceased to exist today, would anyone in the community notice or even care? And the result of that is we began thinking about what kind of neighbor we are and what is it that God would want us to do to love one another. And so with that in mind, we started trying to think of some just natural ways that we could be a better neighbor. We thought about the Christmas parade that passes in front of the building and how hundreds of people stand out in front. And oftentimes they're cold and oftentimes they need a facility to use restroom. So we said, well, why don't we offer them some hot chocolate and open up the building if if they want to use the restroom? And it was a great, great success in communicating that we care about you. We love you. And uh, that'll happen again this coming weekend, this Saturday. And then kind of add on a little more to that this year. We're going to have the opportunity to have pictures. Children can have their picture made with Santa. And some from our youth are working with that. And and as a result, uh, in combination with that is also to give cookies out to those children. And so we're going to need, the goal is to have about 25 women and Greg Coles make double batches of cookies. And uh, truthfully, if other men want to help out too, as long as you can make a good cookie, you're welcome to do so. Please sign up at the Information Center. And just as a little side note, if you've never had a Greg Cole cookie, (laughs) you maybe haven't lived. Uh, You you don't want to pass on that if you ever get that opportunity. Also, we want to remind our ladies that are part of the LIDS class, the Tuesday night ladies class, that uh, that will happen this Tuesday evening at six o'clock and it'll be a little bit different format with a potluck added on to that. So bring what you would like uh, to eat with that. As we think about gratitude coming out of uh, a few weeks of a series here, uh, we studied last week the first half of Psalm 26 to think about this heart that doesn't just have as a checklist I mentioned to you last week, I don't think it'd be anything wrong if you need to put on your checklist, let me be grateful today. But I'm just simply saying, when we study it in Scripture, gratitude is not just one action. Oh, let me do one thing today that I show or express gratitude. Gratitude is from a heart, from a life that understands it is so richly blessed by God that it can do nothing else except get up every day and be grateful to God 
for all that he has done and all that he is. And then when all of those people that are children of God that live that kind of life have the opportunity to come together, they long to come together to express that praise to God. And so we talked about in the middle of Psalm 26 is this passage that teaches us to have a voice of thanksgiving. But the first half of the book talks about the walk of that person that's going to have the voice of thanksgiving. And the last half of that chapter talks about the love that that person's going to have for dwelling in the presence of God. And so let's give just a quick review of what led up to verse 7 and 8. And then let's go in and spend the rest of our time. Uh, we won't study in the sense of reading every verse, but if you have your Bible open or we'll have some slides here. You remember in, in uh, verse 1, we see the idea that there is a dual responsibility. As we study this, it's important that we don't bypass our responsibility. If we're going to have this heart of Thanksgiving, there are things that we have to do. But we would be sorely amiss if we thought, well, let's just do it all myself. I'll pull myself up by my own bootstraps and I'll just create this life. No, it is placing ourselves within the power of God. God can do amazing things in your life. God's not dead and God's not through working and God's not through creating. Listen, God is not through creating you if you will allow him to continue to work on you. And so as we read this Psalm, please see how the Psalmist keeps both of those in mind. He talks at times about what he's going to do. He talks at other times about what he know God is going to do. And it produces a life that, it, that expresses great thanksgiving to God. So in verse one, we see that, that this life is a life where he's going to walk in integrity. And we talked about this completeness and wholeness, but then notice also in verse one, it's to, it, he uses the word walk in trust. Now, this walk in integrity and this walk in trust is the idea that I trust God with all of my being. Now, notice also at the end of verse three, this walk is also going to be in truth. And so we've got this walk where I bring all of myself to God and I say, God, I trust you with everything. And I'm going to walk in everything you ask me to do. Now look at the end of verse one, what God will do. The psalmist knows that then God will place us at a place that's not slippery. In other words, you might be saying, you know, I've never totally surrendered myself to the Lord. I, I don't act like a Christian at work. I don't live like a Christian on vacation. What would my life look like if I went among my closest friends and I really surrendered all? I can tell you, God will put you in a stable place. There may be some things about your world that seems upside down at first because it's a different way to live. But God will put you in a stable ground. Now, he was humble though. You know, I, I, I'm not saying I have all of this together. And so that's where he came to verse two. And he says, all right, God, I want you to test me. I want you to prove me. And whatever imperfections in my life, I want, I want you to refine those. It's like the goldsmith taking the gold and melting it down so that the impurities are no longer in it. Are we willing to say, God, now we're back to that. I trust you with everything, all my heart, all my mind, all my life. You float out, you bring out, God, you have the power to do it. And I have the power to put myself in your hands. I'm putting myself in your hands. I'm gonna walk in truth and you take care of me. And someone says, you would trust God that much? And then that brings us to verse three. 
I know God's loving kindness. I know his mercy. I trust that God will do what is good for me and I know that he's merciful towards me. Because of that, it truly is a life of sanctification. Because of that, we're on a different course. So in verse four, we're not going to sit down with idolatrous and we're not going to live a life of hypocrisy. Verse five, we're not going to enjoy evildoers and we're not going to become or set around those who are wicked. But instead in verse six, we're going to see ourselves with hands of innocence. Now notice this, I, I'm sure you've gotten this at this point, but let's emphasize it. It's not him standing up in arrogance and saying, look how perfect I am. In essence, what he's saying here is, look what God has done for me. God has forgiven me. God has placed me on, on stable ground in my life. God has taught me truth. Did I have a responsibility in that? Yes. I have the responsibility to humbly bring myself and say, Lord, your will be done in my life. And so he brings this innocence, this innocent hands to the altar. And notice this time, because we're reading the Old Testament, this time the gift is not, I bring a lamb to you. I bring a, a, a heifer to you, a, a bull, a goat. This time he says, what I bring to you is what I can't hold back. I bring to you a voice of thanksgiving. I want to tell of your marvelous works. There are many marvelous works that God has done, but it very well could be that when the psalmist says the wondrous works or the marvelous works here, he's talking about what God has done in his life. If you are a faithful Christian, test yourself this morning. Make sure you're not taking the credit for the goodness that's in your life, but that you're giving God the glory. If you are a Christian woman that is a faithful Christian wife, it's not pat yourself on the back and look how great you are as a wife, but it's give God the praise that he has taught you and he has directed you and he has placed your feet on stable ground because he has taught you how to do that. Same as a husband, same as obedient children, same as a Christian coworker, as a Christian employer, the same thing as a Christian neighbor. It's not, look how great I am. It's thank you, God. I have voice of thanksgiving to you because I see that my life is so much better now and it's all because of you. It's all because I have been willing to turn over every part of my life to you. Thank you, God, for putting me on stable ground. But he doesn't close with just verse seven there of this Thanksgiving. He tells something else that he loves, and that's what we want to look at today. Look at Psalm 26 and verse eight. This just continues right out of everything we just said. He says, Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do you see the emphasis in this one verse on where someone lives? When he says, I have loved the habitation of your house. Well, if he would just said your house, most people know that you live in your house. What's the psalmist doing here? He's placing the emphasis. Lord, let me tell you why I love your house. I love your house because I know it's where your habitation is. The word habitation means where one abodes. In other words, you might look at a bird and say their habitation is a nest. You might look at certain animals and say their habitation is a den. 
You might look at human beings and you might say their habitation and you point to a physical house. Where is the habitation of the Lord? Because wherever it is, the psalmist says, I love it. I love going near where you live. Well, then notice the next phrase. And the place, it is pointing to a location. The place where what? Your glory dwells. Now he's back to the idea of where do you abide? Where is the abode of glory? It's wherever God's habitation is, is where the glory of God dwells. We grasp this. It's almost part of this is almost our human nature. And what I mean by that is we love the dwelling places of people we love. You agree with that? Let's just imagine, if you will, let's illustrate this in, in very truthful facts. What if you got on the interstate and you started driving west? Before long, you're going to come to a nice little city called Memphis. Now, if you took the right and correct terms when you entered into Memphis, you would come to the second most visited home in all of the U.S., only second to the White House. Now, as you approach this property, you would see that there is an entranceway with a musical themed gate. And you would also then walk in to this structure and you would see a beautiful stairwell. You would see in the back of this picture a music room. You would see in the front of it a front room, a living room. You could walk through and see a dining room or does this bring back memories, anyone? Carpeted kitchen. You could see the jungle room or you could see the yellow TV room or you could even walk into an area that would just show so many awards and accolades that the homeowner had been given to him during his life. People don't pay a pretty nice dime and drive long distance and enter in by somewhere around 650,000 people a year just because they would like to see a mansion. You know exactly why people go to all that trouble to arrive by the hundreds of thousands every year. It's only for one reason. That was the home of Elvis Presley. When people love someone, they love where they abide. So now we see that the psalmist told us that. I love the habitation of the Lord's house. I love the place where his glory dwells. God, I, I not only love you, I want to come and be close to you. I want to spend time with you. And then that glory, I want your glory to become my glory. I want to spend so much time with you that I start looking a lot more like you and a lot less like my fleshly nature. I want to look a lot more like you and not so much like this world that I've left behind. He's already talked about the sinners and the evildoers. I want to look more like your glory, less like their undesirable characteristics. So that leads us to the question, where does the Lord dwell? Because when he says this here, 
It wouldn't have been in the temple because remember, David wasn't allowed to build the temple. And so he would have been speaking about most likely the tabernacle where it had that back room of the Holy of Holies where the presence of God is. And he loved to go as close as he was allowed to go into the presence of God. But we don't live under the old covenant. We don't have tabernacles and temples today in that same sense that they did under the old covenant. So where does the Lord dwell today? Do you remember 1 Timothy, the third chapter and verse 15? You remember that Paul is making a statement here of wanting to come to Ephesus and spend time with Timothy and with the brethren there at Ephesus. And he says, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to behave or conduct yourself. Where? In the house of God. What is that? Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. Today under the new covenant, what is it that if the psalmist was going to give the very same principle and say, Lord, I love the habitation of your house, today under the new covenant, it would say like this, Lord, I love your house, the church of the living God. Why do you love the house? Because that's where God dwells. Why do you love the church? The highest reason to love the church is because it is the dwelling place of God. See it again in Ephesians 2. Let's read 19, 20, 21, and 22. Several things are taught here. But I want us primarily, right now as we read this, just notice, where is it that God dwells? How does he look upon the church? He says in 2 and 19, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, now notice this, and members of the household of God, and having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together, was it growing to? A holy temple. See, that's Old Testament language to say the temple is where God dwelt. What are we today in the church? Well, back up there in verse 19, he says that we're members of the household of God. We're members of God's temple today. When we go back here in 21 and he says, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for what? A dwelling place of God in the spirit. Listen, we're not saying that, oh, maybe a good application is just, you could think about maybe it's like the Lord dwelling in the church. No, it's not like. The church is where God dwells. We should love the Lord's church because it's his dwelling place. Don't take lightly when people criticize the Lord's church. You're literally criticizing the home of God, the dwelling place of God, the place that on this earth where God chooses to abide. The church is his abode. It's his habitation. We ought to love the church. And if we were going to pick the highest and greatest reason why we love the church, arguably this could and probably should be the reason. It is the dwelling place of God. The psalmist is so thankful. He just has to lift his voice in, in praise and thanksgiving. And he has to tell of the wonderful works. And then he says, oh, I just love the habitation of the Lord. 
I love the glory, that the place that his glory dwells. But now before we leave this particular thought, I'd like for you to see that, remember the church is not bricks and mortar. The church is a church, uh, the bricks and mortar is a church building. The church is made up of the people. So when we dismiss, if, if you're part of the Lord's church, in a few minutes we dismiss, we go to Bible class, then we dismiss again and, and you go about your way. Now tell me, where's the church? Does the church cease to exist because we're not gathered? Or when you go to the restaurant and the way you treat the waiter or waitress, that day, that's how the church is gonna treat them. And when you go to work tomorrow, the way you interact with your coworkers, that's the way the church is going to treat them. And the way you interact with family and neighbors, that's the way the church is going to treat them. Why? Because we never cease to be the church as long as we are faithful to the Lord and we dwell within his habitation. So with this in mind, you remember 1 Corinthians 3 and 16, do you not know that you are the temple? He's talking to individual members of the church here. And he says, you are the temple of God. Hmm, we recognize that language, don't we? When he talks about the temple of God, we know what's being emphasized there. And that the spirit of God dwells in you. God dwells in the gathering, the church universal, but God also dwells in the individual members. Look at verse 17. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are? We ought to love the habitation of God because God longs to be close to us. Someone says, why do I want to become a part of the church? I want to dwell in God's habitation. And in that, God will dwell in me. You don't want to live a life where God's with you all the time? The Lord's church is not for you. Did you hear that? That's called hypocrisy. When you say, I only want God on Sunday mornings. And I only want God when I'm in an emergency room. And I only want God when I'm around good people. But there are a lot of times in my life, every week, I don't want God. The Lord's church is not for you. You can stay out in the world and play that game. The Lord's church it's for those that love God so much. It is the presence of God living in his presence and him in them all the time that draws them to his church. The big draw, the most important draw is not the joy that we have in being around good people and the list of so many other things. The big draw is God. And it's his presence that creates these other things that are so very wonderful. So now let's think about this second part and then the lesson's yours. But what about that part of glory? You know, when he, he stated back up in, in verse eight, Psalms 26 and eight, he says, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. There's so much that can be studied on this topic. And so not trying to pretend to tell you we, we're gonna give a full interpretation to this right now. But I just want you to think about a few basic points. When we think about living in a place where the glory of God dwells, 
Have you ever thought about what happens when we sin? Romans 3 and 23 explains it this way. Number one, we're all guilty of sin, for all have sinned. But what happens? Notice we fall short of what? We fall short of the glory of God. When we go back and we live over here like we used to live, we have fallen short of this glory when we live in his presence and we reflect his glory. You remember in Exodus 33 where Moses, he wanted so much to see the face of God. Remember what else he wanted to see? He wanted to see the glory of God. And remember that's where God put him up on a cleft of a rock. Finally, it's like, almost like he talked God into it. And God says, I can't let you see my face. I'll put my hand over you and I'll pass by and I'll let you see my back. Godly people have always longed to see the glory of God. John, the first chapter. Remember, Jesus there is called the Word. And John is telling about what it was like to have God in flesh to live right in front of them. And finally, in verse 14, he, he, he makes this statement that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld. That, that means, look, we, we, we just couldn't take our eyes off. We beheld the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Godly people long to see the glory of God. Why? Well, because it's God's, but also because we come to understand what it can do for us. Look with me, if you will, 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3 is a passage about primarily the new covenant and how the first covenant, the old covenant was written on tablets of stone and how this new covenant that belongs to Christ is to be upon the heart. And then he gives a little more language about Moses going up on the mountain and, and he saw the glory of God's fullness, but all the other Israelites didn't get to experience that. But under this new covenant, we all get to experience an amazing measure of glory if we choose. And so this is the way this passage closes. In verse 18, he says, but we all, in other words, not just Moses, not just one person, we all with unveiled faces, beholding what? Beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. Why do we want to come in the presence of God? Because we know that God can do so much for us. We, seeking God's glory, can take on his glory. And so he's referring here to the new covenant that come, of course, from God. And Christ's covenant. And he says, it's like looking in a mirror. And when you look in a mirror, you, you see things that need to be changed. And here in the mirror, the mirror is the glory of Jesus. And so you look at yourself as the glory of Jesus, and just like you look in a mirror and you see things that, that need to be changed. We're going to look into Christ's covenant, and if we're honest, we're going to see a lot of things that need to be changed. And we're going to change those. By God's power and our responsibility, we can have a greater measure of glory in our life. Notice our being transformed. That's metamorphosis. It's the idea of like a caterpillar to a butterfly. What are you without? the Lord. When you seek the presence of the Lord and you seek his glory and you are continually by God's power being transformed, what do you become? If you and I get this right, 
We become something that we can't hold back the thanksgiving to God. God, I see the marvelous works that you have done in my life. I love the house of the Lord. Because of that, verse 9, we're not going to enjoy running with sinners anymore or bloodthirsty men, not people with sinister schemes, those that operate by bribes. In other words, what are we going to love? We're going to love the righteous, the virtuous, the honorable, the honest. Why? Because those are all characteristics of the glory of our God that we begin to reflect his glory. And because we're striving for this, these other ways become repulsive to us. Or what about verse 11 and 12? Notice this is the last two verses. So what he's going to do is he's going to review everything that he's just written and that we studied the last two weeks. And he says, but as for me, I will walk in my integrity. See, he's going back to literally the first verse. He says, let me tell you what my responsibility is. I'm going to bring all of me and I'm going to turn it over to the Lord. And then notice the next phrase is what God will do. He'll redeem me and he'll be merciful to me. He knows I can't do this without him. He will do for me what I cannot do. Well, where is this going to leave you? Verse 12, my foot stands in an even place. You ever been on a, on a place that may be so steep where you say, I, I can't hold my footing. I'm slipping, I'm slipping. That's what verse one was about. And so now he gets to verse 12 and he says, look what I've done. I brought all myself. I'm dealing with integrity toward God. I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I'm not holding back. I give all of myself. Look what God's done. He'll save me. He'll redeem me. He'll be merciful to me. He knows that I'm working on this. And so I bring myself and I say, Lord, continue to refine me. I'm looking for your glory. And then finally, it leaves us in a solid place. And notice the end of 12. In the congregations, I will bless the Lord. Now, if we take that and use New Testament teaching. In other words, he would say, when I gather with the church and I see all the marvelous works that God has done for me and the people that I love, he says, I can't help but bless the Lord. I can't help but have a voice of thanksgiving. I love where God dwells. The place where his glory dwells. I love it. I don't know how to say it any clearer than just to beg you, not from me, but from the teachings of God's word. Love the Lord's church. It's not just another denomination. It's not a gathering place that's a social event. It's not just a place that does some benevolent stuff. First and foremost, it is the presence of God and those that come to him to belong to him. And all the fellowship that comes out of that is because we're God-centered. All the benevolence that is to come out of that is because we're God-centered. All of the teaching that comes out of that is because we're God-centered. Brethren, 
love the Lord's church and join in with the psalmist and proclaim to the top of your spiritual lungs, I love God's dwelling place. This morning, if we can help you in any way, if you're ready to become a Christian, which by Acts 2 language means you're ready to be added to God's dwelling place. You're ready to be added to his church. If you're ready to do that, we'd love to assist you with that this morning. Maybe along the way, you kind of look at your life and say, you know, I'm walking a little bit more like the world and I'm walking less like a person who is saved, like a person who is integrity with God. And I want to come back and I want his power to forgive me this morning. He'll redeem you and he'll be merciful to you. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand as we